I told you that I was a poems person last Wednesday night. I'm also a paintings person. Um, for my 16th birthday, we went to Philadelphia for four days, and the highlight of my trip was the Philadelphia Museum of Art, which is almost hands down the best um, art museum I've ever been to. They had, at that time, an entire wing devoted to Monet, beautiful paintings by Monet, and several other of my favorite artists. This one is a Michelangelo, dated at the height of the Italian Renaissance, towards the end of Michelangelo's career. And if I were to tell you that this painting represents or depicts a biblical figure, well, there would probably be a flurry of different answers as to which one it would be, and this would probably turn into a Matthew 16 situation. Some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets, some say Isaiah. Maybe somebody would say Christ, but that's a little old for my conception of Jesus in my head. Um, This is the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet at the end of the southern kingdom of Judah. He witnessed the final Babylonian captivity, the last of the Jews left in the southern kingdom going into captivity in Babylon. He witnessed some things after that, and you can find all of that in the book of Jeremiah and the book of Lamentations. And There are parts of it in the end of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles as you sort of wrap up the history of Israel as a nation there. But Jeremiah, as a biblical figure, reminds me of something. Reminds me of a truth about the Bible that sometimes we miss, that sometimes we overlook when we think about what the Bible's about. Another question I could ask that would lead to a flurry of different answers on a whole bunch of different fronts is, what is the Bible about? And some people would say, well, the Bible is about who God is. The Bible is about God's intended relationship with his people. The Bible is about what God's people should look like. The Bible is the basic instructions before leaving earth, the B-I-B-L-E. All sorts of different answers, and those would all be true. But one thing that the Bible is about is emotion. The Bible is about emotion. What is Jeremiah known as? The weeping prophet. Why? Because he preached to Israel, to Judah, For over 40 years, not a single conversion. He and his scribe, Baruch, preached for 40 years. Could you imagine preaching for 40 years? And we have people in this country who have preached for 50, 60, 70 plus. Huge inspirations to me. But 40 years and nobody paid attention. Nobody paid attention enough to be converted back to the correct line of religion that Jeremiah at that time was espousing. Nobody changed their lives because of what Jeremiah said. And so he's known as the weeping prophet. And because he's known as the weeping prophet, we have this idea that the Bible is about emotion. And he's far from the only person that I think of when I think of emotion in the Bible. One of the first places my brain goes to is Abraham. Could you think about having to leave behind your entire life? and go somewhere that you have never been before, that you've barely even heard of. The fear, the struggle to emotionally cope with leaving security and going to a place that you barely know the name of. And then later, after he has had this son, what joy to have a son at the age that Abraham did and the laughter that Isaac was named for that Abraham and Sarah shared. And after that, God says, I want you to give me your son as a sacrifice. The pain 
the sorrow, the anguish that Abraham must have gone through. And throughout various biblical stories, you can talk about the different types of emotions that you see in the Bible. Obviously, love is probably the first one that comes to most people's minds. God is love. We have an entire chapter called the love chapter in 1 Corinthians. There's The Apostle John is called the Apostle of Love. And with love comes compassion, this idea that you should care for one another. There's also sorrow. There's also pain and grief. There's joy in the Bible at various points. There's fear. We talk about the wrath of God sometimes, and that's a very real thing. And there are also other people who become angry because of different circumstances and situations in the Bible. All of those emotions are real. And one of the things that sometimes we struggle with is looking at a book whose oldest parts are about 2,000 years old at this point and saying, hmm, this is really just a book. I mean, it has some really inspiring stories in it, but do we get emotionally attached to the Bible like we should? Do we relate to the characters, and relate to the stories in the ways that we should? I say all of that and use that as my introduction because if we miss the emotional backdrop and the emotional content of the story that we're going to talk about tonight, it really doesn't mean anything. If we don't see the emotion and the pain and the joy that happens in this story and as a result of this story, we will miss the story. If you would, open up to 2 Kings chapter 8, starting in verse 7. Probably not a place that most of us are as familiar with in the Bible, but 2 Kings is a very important part of Israel's history as a nation. And as we get to the opening part of chapter 8, let me set the scene a little bit. Elisha is currently the prophet in Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, which if you know anything about the history of Israel, you know that the northern kingdom was definitely the worst of the two. There were some good kings in Judah. There were not any good kings in Israel. Elisha, at this point, is the main harbinger of God's will and God's message to the people of the northern kingdom. It had been Elijah, and then he moves on. He gives his, a double portion of his spirit to Elisha, who was his disciple and his friend. Now Elisha has taken up this message. And in the opening chapters of 2 Kings, Elisha's doing a really good job. In chapter 4, you get the Shunammite widow and him basically saving her life and then restoring her son from the dead. In chapter 5, you get the healing of Naaman, the Syrian general who had had leprosy, and he was miraculously restored, not as obviously it was God's power that did it, but he went to Elisha, and Elisha told him how. Um, in, chapter set, or in chapter 6, at the beginning, you get the floating axe head, right? And there's this guy who has been chopping wood. His axe head flies off of the axe into the river. It sinks. He thinks that he's done for, that his livelihood is gone. And Elisha says, no, here you go. He lifts it back up. Well, God lifts it back up, but you know what I mean. And it floats down the river back to this man. Elisha is on fire. And then trouble hits about halfway down in 2 Kings chapter 6, because the Syrians or Aramaeans, the broad region that the nation of Syria is inside is known as Aram. The Aramaeans or Syrians come down. They invade the northern kingdom of Israel. They take Samaria, the capital city, hostage which causes a famine, which causes death and decay of the nation 
everywhere. Now, the one person who stays faithful in this event is Elisha, who says, before you have time to doubt this, tomorrow there's going to be food back in this city. Nobody else believes him. And you have this really moving story of these four lepers in 2 Kings chapter 7 who say, well, we might as well give up. We might as well go to the Syrians and either they'll give us some food or they'll kill us, so we'll see what happens. They go out and the Syrian camp is empty. God has caused a commotion that has made the enemy run for their lives. And at first, the lepers do what probably most, if not all of us, would do. They have fun and they go into tent after tent and camp after camp and they live it up and then they say wait what we're not what we're doing is not good we need to be sharing the good news and so they take the news of the Syrians being gone back into Samaria the city is saved the nation is saved there's rejoicing and after that Elisha is probably thinking well I've gotten past the big trial in my life I've gotten past the big cataclysmic event that would have stopped me from preaching. Okay, maybe I can do this. Maybe I can get back on fire again. And then you get to 2 Kings chapter 8. In the aftermath of Israel being saved from Syria, Elisha, for whatever reason, probably at the direction of God, goes back up to Damascus, the capital of Syria, and that's where we pick up in, chapter, in verse 7. Elisha went to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. It was told him, saying, The man of God has come here. And the king said to Hazael, Take a present in your hand, and go to meet the man of God, and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? So Hazael went to meet him, and took a present with him of every good thing of Damascus, forty camel loads. He came and stood before him and said, Your son Ben-Hadad, obviously talking metaphorically here, appealing to Elisha for a blessing like a son would to his father in a circumstance like this. Your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you saying, Shall I recover from this disease? And Elisha said to him, Go and say to him, You shall certainly recover, but the Lord has shown me that he will really die. That's a little weird, isn't it? If prophets are going around hearing one thing from God and delivering another message, I have some questions for a lot of the people who helped write this. So why does Elisha flip the script on Hazael and on Ben-Hadad like this? In verse 11, this is where the emotion hits Elisha. First, it says he set his countenance in a stare on Hazael until he was ashamed. He's staring this guy down. He is glaring at him until the point where Hazael is thinking, "Uh, maybe I should leave, I don't know what's supposed to happen next. Elisha is being that intent with his apparent anger towards Hazael specifically. And then it says the man of God wept. Now could you imagine you're in this situation. This prophet who is supposed to be this great man of God comes up to you, delivers a message that you think is a little off and then stares at you until the point where you're really uncomfortable and then breaks down and cries. You'd think this guy's all over the place. What is going on? Maybe being a prophet this long has done something to this guy. I mean, this is not normal. And Hazael, he's, verse 12, what? Why are you weeping? Why are you you crying? 
And Elisha answers and says, Because I know the evil that you will do to the children of Israel. And I'm going to skip the rest of verse 12 because I don't want to think about things this bad in a context this good. But verse 12 is a bad prophecy. Verse 12 is a lot of pain for a lot of people in Israel that Hazael is going to cause, according to Elisha. And it's so bad that even the Syrian Hazael says, What is your servant, a dog, that he should do this gross thing? Am I really going to get to this point? I don't think that I could ever get there. And then Elisha delivers the key piece. The Lord has shown me that you will become king over Syria. And if you keep reading in this chapter after verse 13, Hazael goes back. He delivers the news that Ben-Hadad is going to recover from the disease. Ben-Hadad recovers from the disease. And then it says the day after, Hazael kills Ben-Hadad in his sleep and becomes the king of Syria. Like I said, the emotional key to this story is in verse 11. Elisha sees what he's been told by the Lord. He sees the pain that's going to happen. And first he gets mad at Hazael. And then he breaks down and cries. He's been preaching to these people for who knows how long now. Probably decades at this point. He sees the pain that they're going to go through as a nation and he cries. He weeps for his people. Now, Elisha knows that things are going to be okay. Otherwise, he wouldn't still be prophesying, right? I probably wouldn't be here. Most of us probably wouldn't be here if we didn't genuinely believe that things are still going to be okay. And in Amos chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, you see the fulfillment of the fact that Israel is still going to be okay after this. Amos was written about 50 years after this encounter between Elisha and Hazael. And in Amos chapter 1, the book opens up with a series of judgments on nations surrounding Israel. Guess which one's first? It's Syria. And the children of Ben-Hadad and the children of Hazael are specifically mentioned as those who will bear the retribution and the vengeance of God for what they have done to Israel up to this point. And Elisha, on some level, knows this. He has to, to continue to trust in God the way that he does, to continue to have the relationship with God that he does. He has to believe that this is going to work out in the long run, but we believe that this is going to work out in the long run, and sometimes we don't respond like it, right? In the moment when we get bad news, when we find out that something's going to happen that we are not okay with, we don't react like everything's going to be okay. We don't see God's providence happening. So even though Elisha knows that everything's going to be okay, he reacts very emotionally and present in this moment. And for the next few minutes, we're going to talk about what he does in this moment. When he gets bad news. And really the term bad news is softening the blow quite a bit. This is devastating. This is a nation of people, God's nation of people, going through years worth of pain. Elisha, the prophet, the representative of God, gets that news. And what is his reaction? That's what we're going to look at tonight. Three things that I've picked out from this story that Elisha really does here. The first one is this. And this is the most obvious one. Elisha was heartbroken. 
He was heartbroken. And wouldn't you be too if you were in his shoes? You see people who you love, who you've worked for, who you have spread the gospel to, the good news of God's redemption in their lives too. And even in a, a Jewish Old Testament context, you have saved a lot of people from a fate much worse than they will have because you continue to enforce the law. You continue to represent God. And the pain still comes. And the pain comes for people that Elisha cannot protect. There is nothing that Elisha can do in this situation to save Israel, and so he is heartbroken. Heartbroken to the point of anger. He's mad at Hazael. He stares him down. Have you ever stared somebody down before or been stared down at by another person? It's not a good experience. Nobody is comfortable in that situation. That's where Elisha is when he sees bad things happening. When he gets bad news in his life, his heart is broken. The second thing that Elisha does, or that Elisha was in this situation, Elisha, despite being heartbroken, was still honest about what was going on. And you can see that in verse 10. It it seems sort of roundabout. He says... Go say to Ben-Hadad, you shall surely recover, but the Lord has shown me that he will really die. That seems to contradict itself, but technically Elisha is still being truthful because Ben-Hadad recovers from the disease. What he doesn't recover from is his ale, who will kill him and take his place. In that sense, he's still honest, but in a deeper sense, Elisha is still honest about what's going on here. Despite hating what is going to happen, to Israel as a result of Hazael, he does not soften the blow. He does not mince words. He says, you are going to cause some pain in some specific ways to a lot of people. And I can't do anything about that. How often do we try to do something about it by not talking about it? How often do we get bad news in our lives and the lives of people that we care about and we decide not to talk about it? Because we think, see, that talking about, not talking about it makes it better. Does it? Not usually. Do we mince words? Do we spin the story to try and make it not as bad as it seems? Do we... Tell select people. Sometimes we tell this person the bad news, but this person, eh, they, they don't need to hear it. That might come back on me. Elisha was honest. He even told the person that was going to perpetrate this, look, this is what's going to happen. And I know it, and you know it, and there's nothing either of us can do about it. We might as well get it out there in the open. Elisha was still honest in the face of bad news. Number three... Elisha was humble. Not humble in the sense that we usually think about. Usually when we think about humility, we think about the opposite of pride, right? I don't deserve credit. I don't deserve praise for something that I've done, said, whatever. I don't want to be the person on a pedestal. And Elisha was certainly that throughout his ministry. But humility is also a synonym of meekness. And when meekness is brought to mind, usually most people go to one of the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. 
A meek person is somebody who does not stand to inherit. A meek person is somebody who does not seek to inherit. A meek person is somebody who doesn't want control. And what Jesus is saying in that beatitude is the people who don't want control, the people who know themselves well enough that they don't think they deserve control, they're going to inherit the earth. Eventually, they will have control because they will have the word of freedom that I'm going to give them. And that's the kind of humility that Elisha demonstrates here. He hates it. He knows what's going to happen. He's honest about what's going to happen. And he hates it, and it breaks him. But he is humble enough to say, I do not have control over this situation. I do not have the ability to stop this from happening because I am not God. And I am not a king. And even though I'm a prophet, I am just a representative. I am just a messenger of God. I do not have the power to do this and I do not need to pretend like I do. How often do we pretend like we can change the bad news? How often do we pretend that we can make it go away? How often do we seek control in our own lives, no matter how big or small the bad news is? Maybe it's devastating on this level like it was for Elisha. Maybe it's a bump in the road, an inconvenience. How often, especially in those cases, do we say, I got it. It'll be okay. I got it. Do you? Do I? I know I don't all the time. Most of the time. Elisha was heartbroken by this news. But he was honest about what it was. And because he was honest, he was able to be humble and say, God, you have this, not me. So, what do we do when we get bad news? And there's an obvious takeaway, right? We do those three things. We're honest, we're humble, we're still heartbroken. Do we do that? Because, see, bad news comes in a lot of different forms. Maybe bad news is physical. Maybe bad news is, I'm in poor health. Maybe bad news is, I'm not as young as I used to be. Maybe bad news is I'm not old enough to do something or I'm not equipped to do something. Maybe bad news is more financial. I've lost a job. I need to change jobs. I'm, something has come up financially that's going to impact me, that's going to make my life harder. Maybe bad news is social. This person doesn't want to be with me anymore. This group thinks that I'm not good enough for them. I've let this person down. Maybe bad news happens in the family. Mom and dad are too harsh. The kids are out of control. Brother, sister won't leave me alone. Maybe the bad news happens in the church. I don't agree with how this congregation is doing this. I don't agree with the eldership on this. I don't agree with what the Bible says about something. I don't agree with how this group is handling this scripture in their worship. I don't agree with, I don't agree with, I don't agree with. That's one, all of what I just said is one type of bad news. There's another type of bad news. 
All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every person in this room, every person in this world has sin. And maybe the bad news is, I messed up. I messed up bad. I'm encountering something that I have done that has held me back from the glory of God, and that is a problem. That is something that I need to address, that I need to encounter, because it is standing between my relationship with an almighty and holy God. Maybe that's the bad news. And that can happen, that's on a very personal level. All of those are handled on a very personal level. And I do think that Elisha's example is a great one. You're still heartbroken, and see, that one's especially hard when it's our own mistakes, right? Because we become calloused, and we say, well, it's really not so bad. I've gotten used to it. It's one of those little things. Are we still heartbroken by those pieces of bad news? Are we still honest with those pieces of bad news? And really, this is the one that is most all-encompassing, right? Because you can think about something in a certain way and turn it into anything that you want to. And so this bad news, nothing to worry about. This bad news, it's okay. This mistake that I've made, I'll fix it tomorrow. Are we honest with the bad news in our lives? And humility, meekness, I don't have control over this situation. And this one, I would say, is more pressing when it's happening to somebody else. There have been a lot of times that I've seen people in my life hurting, and I have really, really, really wanted control over that situation. That doesn't happen. God has control over that situation. I can pray to God. I can know that He is in control. But I'm not going to have control over that situation. Am I honest and humble enough to say that? And by saying that, eventually to inherit the earth. To inherit the freedom that God and Christ have promised. We can be those three things if we really try. But we cannot be those three things all of the time. Because we are imperfect. We make mistakes. And this is not often our forte. I know it's not mine. This is a really, really hard thing to master. And even getting to the point that Elisha was at takes years of training, takes time and time and time in a relationship with God. And sometimes... I can be those three things, and sometimes I struggle and I fail. What do I do when that happens? What if we ran to the person who is all three of those things? Who has been all three of those things, at least? At the end of Matthew chapter 23, Jesus has just gone on a diatribe, really, against the Pharisees. People who he sees as hypocrites, people who he knows are hypocrites because they have bound laws on people. They're not doing anything to help them. They have become whitewashed tombs because they are beautiful on the outside. The temple looked magnificent. The priests coming in and out of the temple looked really official and like they knew what was going on and like they had control. 
Did they? Your whitewashed tombs, you glisten on the outside, but on the inside you're full of dead men's bones. You have no control over this situation. No more than any other person around you. Jesus goes on this diatribe. Jesus accuses the Pharisees of all of these different things. And at the end, he mentions Abel. He mentions Zechariah. He mentions all of these different specific examples of ways in which the Pharisees have hurt God's people. And in verse 37, Matthew chapter 23, Jesus looks out to the crowd, to the city of Jerusalem, and says, Oh, Jerusalem! Jerusalem! You who stone the prophets and kill those who come to you, how often I wanted to gather you. As a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, you weren't willing. Truly I say to you, your house is left to you desolate. For I say that you will not see me again until the day in which it is said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If there was one city who should have gotten it right by now, it's Jerusalem. If there is one place where the name of God should be revered, it's Jerusalem. It's existed since the time of Abraham and Melchizedek when he was the priest. It's been the seed of God's government since the time of David. The tabernacle is in Israel. The prophets and the priests are in Israel. If there is one place that should have gotten it right by now, that should have understood what was happening, the gravity of this situation and who Jesus was, Jerusalem I wanted to be intimate with you on the most intimate of levels. I wanted to protect you, to nurture you, to guard you. You wouldn't do it. You weren't willing. And your house will be left to you desolate because you have forsaken me. And a few days later... Jesus went to the cross in Jerusalem. The one place that should have gotten it. The one place that should have understood who Jesus was. In that moment, knowing what Jerusalem as a city and Israel as a nation, their response would be to him, their response had already been to them, knowing that bad news, Jesus was heartbroken. He so badly wanted to be in a right place with Jerusalem, but they wouldn't have it. He was honest with what was happening. You're not going to do this. I've seen it. I'm going to continue to see it. You are not going to respond to me the way that you should. And the triumphal entry that was a couple days ago, that was great. That was a show. I need action. And it's not going to happen. And this one is interesting, isn't it? Because... If somebody had control of the situation, Jesus, control over every situation. And Jesus chose humility. Jesus chose meekness. And he went to the cross. Brethren, the one place that should get it right today is the church. We should be the place that 
understands what Jesus means, understands what the gospel means. We should be the place that people expect to see heartbroken by sin, by God's definition of sin, not our own. We should be the place that is honest with people, honest with ourselves, and especially honest with the people out there who are lost, who need an objective truth to come to. And folks, this should be a place of humility. The church is not a museum. The church is a hospital. Nobody in here deserves a pedestal. Everybody in here probably needs to be on a gurney because the spiritual warfare that we are fighting is real. This should be the place that gets it. The church around the world should be the place that gets it. In the past week, I've come to believe that this is a place that gets it. This is a place where those three things are happening, and this is a place where if those things aren't happening, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the place that we run. I believe that of this congregation, of this eldership, of this group of believers, but I can't speak for everybody. You can speak for you, and I can speak for me. And speaking for myself, I'm trying, but I'm not perfect either. Are you heartbroken by sin? Are you honest when trials come your way? We started James in the teen class this morning. What does James open the book with? Consider all things joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. You know what you have to do to be able to consider all things joy when you fall into trials? You have to fall into trials and know that you're there. And know that you do not have the control over the situation that you need to get through it alone. And when you endure in that way, you endure temptations in that way, patience is built, which leads to perfection. Are we heartbroken by sin? Are we honest with where we are? Are we humble enough to say, I'm not where I need to be? I need Jesus every single day. Maybe somebody is in the situation that they are not a Christian yet. Maybe somebody has been studying and has realized that they are in a place that should cause heartbreak. And maybe you want to be honest and humble enough to say, God, I need the forgiving power of Jesus' blood tonight. We can help you with that. Maybe there's somebody here who is heartbroken because of mistakes that have been made in your life and is honest and humble enough to say, I need to come back to the fold, to come back to Jesus, to come back to the place that gets it. Maybe... You're just going through something really hard. And you're heartbroken by bad news that you've gotten. COVID is terrible. I hate it. Social distancing, masks, a lot of bad news in the last almost 16 months, right? Aren't we thankful there is no social distancing at Calvary? At the cross. At the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. We can be close to Jesus, no matter where we are. 
If you need to respond to the invitation tonight, we invite you to come forward as we stand and as we sing.